Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to episode 21 of Under Further Review with Burke and Jen. I'm Burke. I'm Jen. And we're excited to be back with you this week with some more updates on Aaron Hernandez. <laughs> um, a whole lot of murder's been going on in the sports and celebrity world, but um, to kick things off, we're going to be talking to you about the uh, recent uh, developments with the U.S. women's national hockey team and their potential boycott of the upcoming um, world championships. So, yeah, they, the champ, world championships are slated to start literally next week in Plymouth, Michigan, and the U.S. women's national hockey team and the U.S. Hockey Federation uh, we're probably going to shorthand that in a second, uh, have been basically engaged in bargaining for the last 14 months over restructuring um, sort of like salary stipends, incentives, and all of that um, for uh, members of the women's hockey team. So most of the money that women receive uh, while they're training and while they're playing and while they're going to tournaments and travel and all that stuff actually comes from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, and a small portion of that comes actually from USA Hockey, which for for the women, as compared to the $3.5 million um, USA Hockey spent on the men's team in the last year, um, I believe that the women's team received next to nothing compared to that. Um, so there has been a lot of developments probably over the last couple of weeks in terms of where they are in, in, in bargaining and they thought that they maybe had an agreement on Monday. Believe so, yes. And they shook on it. It was probably a tentative agreement. They'd have to go back to their respective parties to um, actually make a tentative agreement into a full-fledged agreement. But uh, and then so the uh, hockey players went home, started packing for this tournament, and two days had passed and they had heard nothing from the Federation about whether or not the deal was going forward. And then on Wednesday or Thursday, which I believe was just two days ago, um, they received a counter offer from the Federation, actually. So whatever uh, progress that they'd made on Monday has sort of just come undone with this new counter offer. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it's a bad situation um, and you know, the U.S. women's hockey team, which is probably the best in the world, will not be playing in this tournament um, to take a stand about uh, pay inequity. And what's really interesting, so a couple of things. One, um, the, this whole dispute became public, I guess, late la last week, two oh, weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Or, yeah. Um, with the USA USA Hockey, which is the national federation that covers both men's and women's hockey, um, coming out and saying, you know, we pay these women so much money, we give them $85,000 a year, um, but when you dug down in the numbers, it was a really dishonest way to um, represent that. The $85,000 a year is if these women um, during an Olympic year won an Olympic gold medal. So it's like telling somebody who's uh, taking like a sales position, oh, you're going to make $300,000 this year. And then you find out, well, yeah, your base salary is 20 grand. And then everything else is based on bonuses. So it's not guaranteed. Um, I will also say one of the interesting things the, the women's national team has been focused on is trying to get more money into development programs for girls playing hockey, which is something that the USA Hockey has completely avoided talking about in any of their public statements about this um, situation because, frankly, they look like assholes for not directing money into those programs. Um, as I think Jen might have mentioned, or maybe we were talking about this before we started recording, um, there's uh, evidence that they've spent three and a half million dollars on boys development programs, nothing on girls. Um, but then they tout themselves as this great uh, supporter of women's hockey and the facts just don't seem to match up with that. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of anecdotally, when they were displaying the, um, they had players show up for, um, uh, I guess, to a press conference to show off the new Olympic jerseys. They literally did not have a single woman player on the, on the dais. Um, so they can't, they literally can't get a place at the table um, and are no longer wanting to be the dinner on the table, I guess. So here we are. Yeah. And um, 
So I guess the the eighty five thousand dollars that Brooke says is really in the Olympic year for when they win a gold medal. They are provided housing allowance, travel allowance, meal expenses, medical and insurance, but you know, that eighty five thousand dollars drops dramatically in non Olympic years and these these players are basically required and and people expect them to train full-time and compete throughout the year so this is their full-time job it's not it's not an amateur league where you can where you can be a lawyer by day and play hockey for the US women's team at by night or something no this is this is a full-time commitment for a lot of these people I did want to say that the story was brought to our attention by our uh, work colleague, Lauren, who did play for USA Hockey up until I think she was 16, she said. Mm -hmm. And um, while she, I don't feel like I'm speaking out of turn, but while she enjoyed playing hockey, she did say that the whole organization um, was very dysfunctional and she was glad that she got out when she did. Um. And what's interesting, talking about the money that they they pay to these players, um, so as part of their uh, their PR campaign, such as it was, USA Hockey um, released an entire letter explaining why they will not pay the women's players a living wage. Um, and it goes something like this, that providing players with a living wage implies that USA Hockey employs these women, and it does not. It doesn't pay the players a salary. It provides training stipends and support to help put them uh, put athletes that participate in our national teams in the best possible position to compete for a gold medal. It's not a professional sports league. We are a nonprofit organization that fields teams for international competition. In non-Olympic years, players from the U.S. hockey team are typically involved in official team activities for 60 to 70 days over the course of a year while in an Olympic year, players have typically trained together in a residency program for the six months prior to the games. Uh, that being said, and I know there are two right now, there are two women's hockey professional hockey leagues, um, mostly run in the Northeast of the United States and in Canada. Um, I believe one of them pays their players. The other one may not. Um, but you know, I, my understanding is that these women, I mean, they're, while it may not technically be their employer, like their job is being a hockey player. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, while the U.S. has won, I think, seven of the nine uh, most recent world championships, we haven't won a gold medal in the Olympics since, uh, I believe, 1998. Oh. Um, Canada beats us consistently. And um, uh, why is that? I don't know, maybe because they're not getting enough money to train properly. Um, you know, some of the comments from the women's team members are, yeah, we get a food allowance, but it's not really super healthy to be eating Chipotle three meals a day. Um, so it's the, what seems to be coming out of this is a real show of unity, though, from women at the very top of the game all the way down to the lower levels of, of hockey because USA Hockey is now in the midst of calling um, numerous uh, hockey players to try and get them to play for the in the world championship that's, that's coming up. And um, at least based on the news coverage I've seen, women are consistently saying, no, I'm not going to participate down to, um, I know there was a kid who was a high school senior um, who refused to basically cross the line and cross the picket line and play in this tournament. Um, there seems to be a real sense of unity uh, amongst the women's hockey community in the U.S. Um, so it looks like we may not be fielding a team next week. Yeah, um, I and it would be and it would be too bad just because there are so few opportunities for them to play in like on such a high stage and for I mean to take a stand um, about pay equity. I mean it's really it's really important. I know uh, as you said earlier that um, Demora Smith of the NFL Players Association yeah. president has come out in support of the U.S. Women's National Hockey Team. Uh, Major League Baseball's Players Association has also thrown their support behind them. I know that they received a letter of support from the Canadian hockey, uh, the women's hockey team in Canada, who is their you know biggest rival. Um, and the, the NHLPA, so the um, hockey, the National Hockey League Players Association, came out in support of these women. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of folks rallying around them to say this isn't, you're not being paid fairly, this isn't right, you shouldn't be forced to mm -hmm. continue playing under these conditions. Um, and it's not just the players, too, but I believe the coaches of the U.S. women's national hockey team has also taken 
the stand in standing in solidarity mm-hmm. with their players to to not participate. So, um, as Burke said, a lot of former players, a lot of play, people who haven't played, who are younger but in the pipeline, have been called up, and that sort of goes the same for um, head coaches and coaches who have been called uh, upon by USA Hockey to come in and fill in to help field a team, and and they have declined as well. So. Um, you know, this is this will be an ongoing story. I I sort of feel that it would be such a huge embarrassment for the U.S. Hockey Federation to not field a team over this. And if they were close enough to a deal earlier this week, then perhaps there is a way for them to get to a deal um, before the start of the tournament. But. Right. And, you know, I guess I understand sort of where USA Hockey is coming from in wanting to distinguish between employees versus uh, providing support through training stipends. But I guess I'm not understanding why there's still not a way to get more money to these people, even if it's in the form of training stipends. Well, and the problem that I think is, is that, you know, there's the Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Mm -hmm. Act, which requires national governing sports bodies to provide you know, quote, equitable support and encouragement for participation by women where separate programs for male and female athletes are conducted on a national basis, end quote. So hockey is one of those programs. And if they're pouring $3.5 million annually to support the boys program and they're providing next to nothing for the girls program, I mean, how is that not in clear violation of the sports act? It certainly would seem to be. I wonder how you enforce that. Uh, yeah, if there's I mean, a body that sanctions you. Yeah, or, like, like, can you, who do you sue? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is America. You can, I mean, like, you can sue <laughs> yes. one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I think it's going to be a huge black eye um, for USA Hockey. I, I think there's a groundswell of support for these women mm-hmm. um, because the, the differences between what they're, the support they get and what the men's team gets is so egregious. I mean, even down it's, it's I know it's little stuff, but like they have to fly coach, the men have, the men can fly like business or first class. Um, and what's particularly galling is that the men who play on the national team, I'm using air quotes, um, is that they're NHL players. Exactly. Like, they've got plenty of money. Yeah. They could play for their own ticket to fly to wherever. And so it's just crazy to me that, you know, they're willing to throw all this money at the men's team, um, but will not offer the same support to the women's team when the women's team fucking wins things. (laughs) That, I think, is what also drives me insane about this and the soccer situation is, like, our women's teams are wonderful, Mm -hmm. despite having roadblocks thrown in front of them by their national federations, yet, you know, we treat them like second-class citizens, and it just feels deeply unfair, even if it's maybe not illegal. Well, but, I mean, I think that especially in states where, um, states like California, where there are, like, gender pay equity laws yeah. that it is illegal like you're you're they are doing the same work for drastically different amounts of money and you can't actually point out like why how their jobs are different because their jobs are to train and to play hockey yeah. right for for both men and women yet you're paying men so much more than you are paying the women so i wonder if part of the issue is that so i believe usa hockey is based out of michigan and isn't michigan now a right to work state so the protections offered to workers there are maybe less although this is covered by federal law so mm-hmm. i suppose it wouldn't make that much of a difference but um yeah, but I mean, it's still that I, I, I still struggle with how um, players at this national stage get away with with it. Right. Um, and you had brought up uh, the U.S. women's soccer team and just we did speak at length about um, their issues probably a couple of months ago when there were, you know, when the there was like litigation over the expiration of the CBA, what that meant, and also the EEOC claims that were brought by the five uh, soccer players. Um, just wanted to give you an update as to what where that was. So USA Women's Soccer fired their general counsel, I think his name was Rob Nichols or Rich Nichols, three days before their collective bargaining agreement expired, which was I think December 31st, 2016. Um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> so 
the U.S. Soccer Federation's plan at that point was basically to maintain the status quo, which means that they were getting to just operate under the, the same terms until a new agreement was reached or until one side gives notice that they're going to walk away from the current agreement. And But they would still have to operate under the status quo. Um, they women uh, The U.S. women's soccer team has hired or actually, um, yeah, hired Becca Rue as their new union executive director, and she and their new uh, executive team have engaged in additional negotiations with the USA soccer president, um, Sunil Galati, and I believe that both sides, there's a general consensus that the tone of the negotiations have changed. People are saying that negotiations are much more positive. Um, the only international tournament the women were going to play this year is the She Believes Cup that just happened a few weeks ago. Uh, and there was really no, at least I couldn't remember any real discussion about um, striking and not going to this uh, tournament. Um, so they beat the German women one nothing, but then subsequently lost to England and France. And there was a lot of there was a lot more discussion about the performance of the team versus the politics of the team, which I think to me signaled that um, that the labor pieces of it were um, like sort of backburnered. And from what I can tell, it's backburnered because things are more positive or at least more productive um, as opposed to negative and. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. So that's where they are in in terms of um, so no contract, but at least they're moving forward, I guess. Um, so I guess that by this time next week we will know whether USA Hockey was able to reach a last minute deal with the women, or um, if we are not going to have a team in a tournament played in our own country. Yeah. Yeah. It's being played in Michigan, so that's. Ugh. <laughs> What a mess. Um, so on a somewhat related note, uh, and not, I guess this isn't really a, a le this isn't a case, but it's sort of an interesting idea. Um, there has been, there was an article that came out um, on the nation.com. I don't know if it was printed in their magazine, um, talking about whether NCAA basketball players should strike the final four. The four final four teams should just refuse to participate in an effort to sort of raise awareness or make an issue out of the fact that the NCAA is a billion, billion with a B, excuse me, dollar business uh, that provides no compensation to these players other than uh, providing them with an education, which assumes that they are actually going to take advantage of their education and aren't basically being treated like professional athletes where school comes second. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, I think the, the thesis of the story or the article was they should strike because the NCAA is never going to make a change unless they're forced to. Mm -hmm. And if these four teams were just like deuces, we're not playing, uh, the NCAA would then feel compelled to do something since this is their cash cow. I guess maybe the bowl championship yeah. series is more so, but. Well, but it's just basketball and football basically that right. are their cash cows. Um, so if these kids stood up and said, we're not participating, this is bullshit that you continue to use our labor and our, you know, labor, not our, the term work, but, you know, use mm -hmm. our, use us to make all this money and we don't get a piece of the pie, um, we're not participating anymore, mm -hmm. that um, it could make a change in the way the NCAA interacts with its athletes. So I think that there's a really big divide um, in terms of, the players that are on the floor for mm -hmm. the final four or in actually any college basketball program, right? You have some programs like Kentucky or Duke or, you know, this year maybe UCLA and, and the Ball family. But you have some players that are des like basically designated for NBA stardom. And you mm -hmm. have other players who are college players yeah. who probably – will end up being an accountant or being a carpenter or whatever else, um, or maybe playing in Europe or in Asia for a few years, but then actually coming back down to earth and, and having like normal everyday jobs. Um, and there's that, the commercial that normally plays during the final four or during the tournament, mm -hmm. like what percentage of, of athletes yeah. actually go on to professional sports. It's like less than 3%. Yeah. It's a very yeah, small Yeah. So amount. basically you're setting up 97% of them for life. Like that's, you know, um, so it is for the person who probably is going to go pro that 
that standing up and saying, I'm not going to play, um, I'm not going to play in the final four to, to take a stand might not necessarily be as big of a deal because they know that they have future basketball games or basketball games in their future, as opposed to the college players. Like this is probably the biggest stage I'll ever be on. And I'm walking away from this opportunity. Um, so there's there, that's one aspect I think of the, of trying to wrangle sort of a disparate group of people together. Right. And I think that's what I found so not to, well, to jump back a little bit to the U S women's national team. That's what I'm finding so interesting about, uh, what's going on with them as USA hockey is going lower and lower in the ranks of women's players to try and field the team for this tournament. You're getting women who this might be their only opportunity to play Mm -hmm. in the world championships. And they're saying, no, I'm not, we're standing up for something bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go along with this just because it's good for me. Um, but that's a hard decision to have to make. And for kids who, um, are so close to the biggest stage athletically they may ever be on Mm -hmm. to walk away from that opportunity, um, would definitely be a tough decision. So I suspect that they are not going to strike. Um, but it's an interesting idea because I do think the author of this story, um, Dave Zirin, Zirin, sorry, I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. And, um, Eton Thomas, uh, I think they're right when they say the NCAA is not going to make a change unless they're compelled to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as long as people aren't willing to kind of band together and stand up, it's going to go along like this. Yeah. And I mean, this isn't their only avenue, obviously, because of the the Northwestern University case that, Mm -hmm. you know, tried to position student athletes as employees of the university so they could engage in collective bargaining. Um, that didn't, I mean, they weren't successful there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, in a year or under different circumstances, you know, there could be success and they would be, um, found to be athletes. I think that they're probably going to have to wait till 2021 to try that again, but yes, (laughs) that's very true. That is, that is true. Um, but I, I sort of feel like, um, you know, for some of these schools, some like how much is it to go to Duke if you're a regular person? Sixty thousand dollars a year. Probably. Um, you know, that is a considerable amount of money, and for someone who is going to Duke, maybe on some scholarship money, to just go and get an education, um, and having their family take out loans and to mm-hmm. scrape together the money to send someone to school just to go to school, and you have individuals who, you know, basically. It, it doesn't cost them anything. They get clothes from Nike or Adidas or Under Armour, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure my husband would hate for me to say this, but... He can't hear us. He can't hear us. <laughs> he might hear us later. But, um, <laughs> you know, he was a walk-on at Notre Dame, and every time he'd walk into the locker room, there was a brand new pair of sneakers in his locker. Oh. Or if or if anything happened to them, he could get a new pair of sneakers. So it's not like he had to buy shoes or, you know, and everyone, like, how many Notre Dame basketball t-shirts or pullovers or hoodies. I mean, it was kind of an endless supply of, of stuff. So, but I understand that, like, you have a lot of students who are in, in different positions where, you know, to be able to even work a part-time job. Well, that's just, you it. know, it's yeah. the fact that you can't do anything right. when you're, when you're playing basketball or football. Cause you hear the horror stories of, I remember back when I followed college basketball a lot more closely, um, Rick Majerus, who is the coach at Utah, uh, a kid on his team, Keith Van Horn, uh, his, I believe his dad died yeah. and Rick Majerus, he didn't have money to buy a suit mm-hmm. to wear to his father's funeral. And I believe the story was that Rick Majerus gave money to get a suit and he got in trouble with the NCAA mm-hmm. for yeah. buying his player a suit to wear to his father's funeral. Mm-hmm. And it's just like stupid shit like that. Yeah. Like you're going to punish them for that. But you know, well, mm-hmm. I was going to say whatever happened at Penn state, but I guess they, <laughs> they did get punished. But like what, what, what's the NCAA doing at Baylor? Well, yeah. Or, or <laughs> even in situations like um, at USC where yeah. like all these boosters were giving kids money or cars and things like that. And eventually you'll get in trouble. But I'm like, the tone deafness of the NCAA, you know, I think that will ultimately be their, their undoing yeah. because you, 
the fact that you make so much money off of these kids and their labor, as you said, to not let them give them the opportunity to even have a part time job or like even in the summertime when you're not necessarily like training because right. basketball doesn't start until December. So you I'm assuming Midnight ma- Madness is on my birthday. So they start oh, in October. October. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm sure there's summer leagues, but. The idea that they can't make money, even if they wanted to, even right. if you're like, I'm going to do work study, I'm going to make, you know, minimum wage working in a library, yeah. like that is forbidden to them. Like you should just pay them, you know, $20 an hour for yeah. the times that they're in practice. So they have money in their pockets. So they don't have to resort to like going to the Salvation Army to get a suit to go to their father's funeral so they can send money home and just makes zero sense to me. Yeah, and it seems like you're setting up a system where they're going to break the rules. Yeah. Like, if you don't give folks an opportunity to, you know, make money on their own and you don't pay them, you don't give them enough, like, free per diem or whatever Mm -hmm. to, I shouldn't say it's free, they're they're working for that money. But, yeah, if if the per diem isn't enough for them to really, like, get by and live on, like, you Mm -hmm. can't travel home on that money, Mm -hmm. um... You know, their parents might not be, or their families might not be able to come and see them play mm-hmm. in the NCAA tournament because they don't have enough money to get there. Yeah. It just seems, it seems inhumane. Um, and that a, an industry that makes as much money as the NCAA does should find a way to throw these kids some kind of a bone to yeah. well, the make idea, it a little easier. Well, and I mean, it's, it's the economic issue, as mm-hmm. we've discussed, but it's also the product issue, too, which is people aren't as into college basketball, and this is a super general statement, but people aren't as into college basketball because college athletes stick around for a year. They're one and done, right? You're not building a program. And people like um, Coach K or John Calipari, they have successful programs because they can recruit year after year after year. Right. But for other programs, I mean, like not only are all those resources put into recruiting so you can recruit a person for literally four months, um, but... but you don't you don't have you don't have as a viewer you don't have a stake in anything because the people that the players that you like are going to be gone they feel like they have to go because they have to make money because they can't just be in college for four years and now you're like so your your product in college is not great and then your product in the nba is not great because you have these 18 year olds who are probably not at their maximum weight yet or their muscle mass and they're struggling to learn the game because they don't have the fundamentals that they learn in college and like this is just perpetuating like a bad product and I understand that the NBA is super popular right now and it's an all-time high in popularity another general statement I understand but um, you know there are some pretty big cracks in the system well, right. I mean, for every LeBron James or um, uh, or Kevin Garnett, you've got a Kwame Brown. Was that mm-hmm. his name? Who got drafted first and is I think he's washed out of the league by now. Like came out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so is Brandon Jennings another one? I mean, he's back so. in the league, but he bounced around for a while. Or like Greg Oden, who only played for a year, and maybe if he'd now it would have been, I guess, really shitty for him since he never would have gotten that NBA money before his legs collapsed underneath him. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he got drafted first. What I have no idea what he's doing now. He's certainly not playing for the trailblazers. Um, no, he was playing for the, uh, I want to say he was playing for the, uh, Miami heat. They must want to kick themselves that they drafted Odin (laughs) and not Kevin Durant. It would have been really fun if the Supersonics had stayed in Seattle and Greg Oden had stayed in the league to mm-hmm. see those two, but he, I digress. <laughs> so just so that we have closed the loop, um, <laughs> Greg Oden did play for the Heat in 2013-2014. He, um, again, was felled by injuries. He attempted a comeback in 2015 and then played with the Jiangsu Dragons of the Chinese Basketball Association in 2016. Um, so I think he's that was his last um professional or paying gig anyways um and Kwame Brown has not played in the league since the 2012-2013 season with Philadelphia although he did have like a 12-year career in excuse me in the NBA which um I didn't think he played for that long so (laughs) I guess good for him but he certainly did not I I would argue did not play to the level of a number one yeah and um I stand corrected because Brandon Jennings apparently did go to one year of college so 
Um, As did Greg Oden, but yeah. um, but the idea that yeah. like you you it's want the one and done yeah. or like high school kids, yeah, or high school kids, you want players to stick around for a couple of years so that you do feel like you're you know you have an investment in someone's career. You send players that are better prepared to the NBA so that the NBA product can, can continue to be great. But I mean, I know that this is like a, a massive system-wide change, but I think that like at some point that's going to happen because it's not just basketball, it's football as well. And there's got to be some, there's got to be a correction in the system. Well, the NBA, if I'm recalling this correctly, has taken steps to try and limit the number of like really young kids who come into the league. They're, yeah, they have, I think it's sort of an unspoken rule. I think the, the, one of the items that was not uh, bargained this last round, mm-hmm. but may be up for subsequent rounds, is base having a minimum age, like 20, I think. You and have I to do they- two years. You either can come straight out. Of high school, or if you go to college, you have to be there for two years. And I think the NFL has some similar uh, restrictions. I'm not sure if it's a minimum age or just that you have to go through college at least for a couple of years. Because there are people who leave early for the NFL, but... um, But only like their junior year, really. Right, and I don't know that I've ever seen anyone go straight from... Uh, high school to yeah. the NFL, and I and I know for the NFL it's different in that they really do they want kill you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're going to snap an eighteen year old string bean in half. But they so they really want like the players to go to college, um, not only for the experience but to basically become bigger human beings. Yeah. yeah. So we really got off track there. <laughs> yeah. So now you know all of our thoughts about um, young people playing professional sports and. Uh, that maybe the NCAA should do something about using these people for their um, athletic skills and then not paying them anything or letting them work real jobs. Um, And maybe um, I will be able to convince my husband to come on to our podcast one day to talk about his experiences um, playing basketball at Notre Dame. But for another day. Yes. So um, now we're off to, I feel like we need to get a segment name for this. Um, uh, murdery murderousness yeah, i don't know i don't know murder was the case that they gave them <laughs> um so yeah there's been um there's been a well some of these murders took place a while ago so it's not like these are all recent murders but um you should pick one to start um well uh, my well, I, I was about to say my favorite murder from this week but that's horrible um the uh murder that i think jumped out to me most uh explicitly this week was a situation involving um, the Real Housewives of New Jersey. Now, for those of you who don't actually know me, I'm a huge Real Housewives fan. Um, I own it and uh, I fly the Real Housewives flag very proudly. Um, So one of the friend of the housewives, Kim DiPaolo, who is on the... She's not an actual housewife? She's not an actual housewife. She, like, shows up for a couple episodes every season, causes a whole lot of shit. Like, one (laughs) season, she started spreading a rumor that one of the housewives used to be a stripper Mm -hmm. and then caused a giant rift in this woman's family. So what, if you don't watch the New Jersey Housewives, I'll be honest, like, it got a little too real for me and I don't find it as funny as it used to be because people are actually going to jail and people are getting murdered. Um... But they're all, like, all the housewives are related on the Jersey season. So there's this whole big fight about, like, one calling her sister-in-law stripper. It's a nightmare. (laughs) Um, And I think that fight continued on into last season. That's where Kim D, because there was also a Kim G. Okay. This is Kim D. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Got it. Kim Kim D came back. She She owns, like, a boutique in this town, Franklin Lakes, which is where the show is set. Um, and it's called posh, but it's spelled with the C H E. Oh, so yeah. it's more like poosh. I guess it looks like Porsche without the R, huh. excuse me, Porsche without the R. Um, Pusha. <laughs> and she has a posh fashion show every year. And then there were competing fashion shows in the last season. But, um, Kim, I'm making this a really long story. Kim D's, uh, friend of the housewives, her car was found last weekend, I guess, with two dead bodies in it. They had been burnt up. Yes, they had been. Uh, the two bodies were uh, shot execution style, and then the car was set on fire. And uh, yikes. Her son was the last person to have been driving the car, but he 
I believe the story is that his friends who were dead in the car drove him to the airport and then he let them keep the car while he was out of town. And somehow in between him being dropped off at the airport and later that day, they were murdered and set on fire. Yes. Um, so it is uh, quite quite a story. Um, I think it's a car that he normally uses as well. So it's not necessarily her, her car, car yeah. but it's probably it's registered, registered to her because exactly. he probably doesn't have a job or any money of his own, which is typical of the children on the Real Housewives shows. But anyway. Uh, so he <laughs> was in, I think, Los Angeles when this all went down. Um, but two men were charged with the killing of Aaron Anderson and Antonio Vega Jr. Those were the, the friends of the son of Kim D., right? Yes. Um, the two men who were charged were Clarence Williams and Jerry Thomas. Um, they were uh, charged, obviously, with um, also robbery, too, I think might have been maybe part of the motive. But they were arraigned on Friday in a Passaic County, in Passaic County Superior Court. Um, tensions ran high. Well, Jersey being Jersey, there was a brawl. There was a brawl. <laughs> I mean, basically, there was a brawl in the courtroom. I believe the the mother of one of the victims and the aunt of one of the defendants got into it. Uh, so, there was a cell phone that was thrown and hit somebody in the head. Someone else tried to hit, like, throw a shoe at someone else. Bailiffs had to keep the parties apart. Um, but... I think I read somewhere where, like, I think T Clarence Thomas, like, walked in the courtroom. Clarence and Thomas. Um, <laughs> sorry, what was his name? Clarence Williams. <laughs> Jerry Thomas. So Clarence Williams walked into the courtroom, and he, like, basically stared everyone down and, like... I mean, if you're the like type of person time. that would shoot two people on the head and then set the car with their bodies in it on fire, I can yeah. see you also being the type of person that would... Come in and uh, stare, stare everyone people down. down. Yeah. Um, I... I think my, I mean, it, this is a horrible story, um, but it, it just, I don't know, maybe it's because it's Real Housewives adjacent, but everything seems like real tacky. My favorite comment, favorite used loosely, um, of this whole situation was one of the uh, police captains investigating the issue after they had confirmed that the two people who were in the burnt out car had been shot in the head said, I can't tell you why we're treating it as a homicide, but we're treating it as a homicide. Like, <laughs> the hell? <laughs> Seems like, what, I, I don't know, that they both like get together and shoot themselves in the head, well, shoot their be. own selves in the head and then set the car on fire? Yeah. Like, this makes no sense. Because even if one was a suicide, the other one has to be murdered because murder. of murder-suicide. Yeah, like... Uh, Otherwise, the acrobatics to pull that off and not be as homicide is, um, that's... Pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is pretty remarkable. So, uh, yeah, so the women in the, in the opposing families basically started swearing at one another. Officers had to keep them apart. They all jumped to their feet, and they all sort of, like, rushed into the center. It's, like, the pictures are kind of crazy. I'm showing Brooke a picture now. This is like, great for an audio medium. <laughs> yeah, I know. So there's like three officers trying to hold back like several women. There's like a shoe in the air. And like. this one lady has, uh, her hair is the color red that does not exist in nature. Um, and not to cast. I've seen rhubarb that color. <laughs> well, that's fair. Although I was going to say not to cast aspersions on New Jersey, but Mindy Kaling said terrible things about Newark and then got a date with Cory Booker. So maybe I will continue <laughs> saying bad things about New Jersey. Uh, um, but this, yeah, the whole... I, I realize we're kind of joking around and making light of it. It's very sad that these two men yes. were were killed. Um, it's I guess so far it's unclear as to what the motive yeah, might have been. Exactly. If it's like a carjacking gone wrong, mm -hmm. or there was or, something or else going on. Or if they knew each other, or like if it was a robbery. Yeah, oh. no idea. But um, it, and it is it is quite sad that like these two young men, you know, lost their lives, and now they're two other young men who are going probably to jail for a very long time because of it. Um, but, but uh, yeah, their families are not acquitting themselves well. <laughs> no. And, um, frankly, neither was Kim D because she put out a post on, uh, Instagram. What was her post? I didn't, oh, I, man. it's, I mean, I guess it was like nice, but, uh, it's from the, she used like a screenshot of the notes app, which is how, you know, lots of famous people get things out on Instagram mm -hmm. nowadays. Um, and said, I am humbled by the outpour of love, not the outpouring, the outpour of love and support during this very difficult time. My son and I are both safe. Our deepest condolences go out to the victim's families of this truly horrific tragedy. 
which other than the grammar issues, I guess is like sort of the best thing that you could say. Yeah. I just Maybe don't... she didn't need to lead with like my son and I are fine. Too bad for the dead people. <laughs> it doesn't take that long to just like read it over before you hit like. Send. She might not know that it should be outpouring. Oh. I've listened to her talk before. Okay. I, um, I am not a connoisseur of the housewives. So um, I have no idea who any of these people are. I know people have like favorite cities and favorite groupings. So. Yeah, like I said, I don't know that New Jersey's gotten pretty tough because they're they're. It's no longer like aspirational. Like I could, uh, yeah. It's it's kind of sad that the like Teresa went to jail. Oh, I believe we discussed right? uh, bankruptcy fraud. Oh, bankruptcy fraud. I believe we discussed Teresa Judice Judice. Her pronunciation of her own last name has changed through the course of the television show. Um, we <laughs> talked about her bankruptcy fraud. Her husband is currently in prison serving, I think, like almost a four-year sentence mm-hmm. for his participation in the bankruptcy fraud. Um, yeah, I don't. it's not fun anymore. Like, I, the, the ladies fighting about, like, dumb shit, like, on... Beverly Hills Housewives, there was an incident where someone wasn't wearing underwear and accidentally flashed someone else's husband, and then the one woman whose husband it was thought it was done on purpose. Like, I like those frivolous arguments, mm-hmm. but when it's, you see a woman being, like, taken away from her children because she has to go to prison for a year, it's kind of sad. And I don't look for that in my entertainment. No, that's not why you're watching um, mindless reality TV. No. Because otherwise you could just watch Locked Up Abroad or something. Right. Yeah. Which I have seen. That's scary. And, well, it was Broke Down Palace that made me oh. never want to travel to Thailand. But, yes. So, um, so yeah. Anyway, that's... Uh, if you want to see some nonsense TV, flip on Bravo. Um, and if there are any, if we ever find out why the hell this ever happened, I guess we uh, we can give you an update in a later podcast. Yeah. Um, and so turning to another um, another murdery story, uh, Bruno Fernandez de Sousa oh my God. is a 32 year old Brazilian soccer player who was convicted of murdering his then girlfriend Eliza I can't pronounce her last name and I sorry to our Portuguese friends yeah exactly and... deepest apologies I think it's maybe Samudio uh, so for murdering his girlfriend at the time um, by chopping her up and feeding her to dogs because she was pressing him to give her more child support for the son that he fathered that was proven through DNA testing. Um, and then didn't he kidnap the child? So, well, he kidnapped both of them. So this oh, was like, okay. so this was in 2010. <laughs> he kidnapped Eliza and the, and the son and the, and Eliza was never really seen again after that. And, uh, people have testified that he murdered her, chopped her up and then fed her to dogs with the help of his ex-wife, his lover. And, seven other people uh yeah yeah and eventually the son was found i think with the ex-wife um that's where he was being kept um and i I can't even wrap my head around it anyway so this happened in 2010 in 2013 he was convicted of this murder hiding her body and kidnapping their son uh he confessed that he knew that she had been strangled and fed to dogs but he denied ordering her death um, Who else would want to kill her? <laughs> like, come on, man. <sighs> so, uh, just recently, his attorney uh, submitted a petition of habeas corpus to the Brazilian Supreme Court saying that his appeal was taking too long and essentially he was being unlawfully detained because his appeal was taking so long. In spite of the fact that he had been convicted of murdering someone, mm-hmm. yes. Yes. Um, the petition was granted by the Supreme Court, and he was released from jail pending his appeal. Then he basically got a number of contract offers and signed as a goalie for Boa Esporte, um, and is now playing soccer as a professional, receiving a paycheck. I, you know, <laughs> a good goaltender is hard to find, I understand, but <laughs> this is a little extreme. Um I, yeah, I don't. I don't even know where to start with this. Like, it's crazy. It's just crazy. Colin Kaepernick can't get a job, but <laughs> this, <laughs> this guy this who guy literally can. fed a woman to dogs. I, I and I understand they are two different leagues. It's a totally different <laughs> situation, but it's just. Is it? <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't be. But for, you know what? I'll be honest. 
the NFL, who was a good enough player who kept his mouth shut, yeah. probably would um, re-sign someone who murdered his girlfriend. Better to dogs. Better to dogs. Riley Cooper used the N-word in public and kept his job for like three years. And I think he's a safety. They're pretty replaceable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, Bruno, who that's what his, that's how he's called in Brazil. Um, they have a very strange naming system <laughs> there. I don't always get it. Um, Sometimes the nicknames appear to have like no relation to their actual names, but aren't actual, like it's a name, mm-hmm. but it's not... Yeah, or or the name that they're called by is a name that's found in the middle of a string of names as opposed right. to either the first or last. And I know yeah. that has something to do with like, you the know, matrilineal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as I said, I don't get it all the time. But he basically. I do have some friends from Brazil. If they want to uh, explain <laughs> to us what what the deal is, we'd be happy to talk about it. In Absolutely. Our next pod. <laughs> um, but he basically his he was interviewed by ESPN Brazil, and he some of the things he said just made my eyes roll back. Um, cause I was, I couldn't believe he said, she's like, I'm not a bad guy. I made a mistake. Was it a serious one? It was serious. Dude, what happened happened. <gasps> <laughs> he murdered a woman and fed her to dogs. And he was like, shit happens, man. What happened happened. Um, I can't even. I mean, the fact he was only setting aside that he got released for what appears to be like no good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, he was only sentenced to like 22 years in jail. And I realized that in the United States, which is a topic for not this <laughs> podcast probably ever. Um, but like the our, our system of jailing people is pretty extreme when you look at the way uh, legal systems in other countries work, but mm-hmm. 22 years for chopping up your girlfriend and feeding her dogs just doesn't seem like a very long time. No. Um, so I think part of the reason, um, one, is that Brazil is probably one of the worst countries possible for being a woman. Um, we were talking before this started, and I believe the statistics are that... Um, a woman is raped every 11 minutes in Brazil. Yep, a woman is killed every two hours and assaulted every 15 seconds, often by someone she knows. And um, that information comes from a nonprofit, um, Mapa da Violencia. Um, so this isn't just stats we're making up on the fly, um, obviously. <laughs> that, would, yeah, but that would be problematic for us. In, in the era of alternative facts, I just want to cite our source. Okay, that's fair. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not a great place to be a woman who is a subject of, of violence because it doesn't seem like the legal system really does much to deter this behavior in men um, or to protect women who are seeking help. Um, in an NPR article that uh, talked about Bruno's resigning, um, also discusses the you know way that the legal system in Brazil treats women and cites a story of um, a woman who went to the police because her husband was beating her and then her husband murdered her and um, just in front of a bunch of people and uh you know her sister was interviewed for the, the murder victim sister was interviewed for the story and when asked um why do you think this happened by the reporter the sister responded the men here think that if you are with a woman you own, oh, you own the, yeah i did read that so um the club that signed bruno boa esporte um has lost three significant sponsors i believe but not all of their sponsors and the club itself i think issued a statement saying that essentially you know people deserve second chances blah 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 dude what happened happened wow um i guess to the point of um how long the appeal was taking um from a 2009 economist article uh the economist basically said that the supreme court of brazil is one of the most overburdened courts in the world um, and in that year alone, they received 100,781 cases to review. So um, I can't imagine that that doesn't take forever. I mean, the way... Uh, yeah, I don't even know what a comparison would be to the United States Supreme Court. How many... I mean, things seem to... They've got pretty liberal rules on things, uh, whether they want to bother hearing them. I shouldn't say bother. Whether they want to hear them or not. Um so I wonder if the there is less discretion on the part of the Supreme Court in Brazil that leads to um, these um, having such a backlog. 
So part of it is that um, there are the, the rights guaranteed, the rights and privileges entrenched in the Constitution, there's many. So people have many more rights that they can go to court, court and, and fight over. Um, and many more ways to go to the federal court, probably, as opposed to, like, in the U.S., for those of this is getting a little law nerdy, but um, the idea basically under the 10th Amendment of the Constitution is anything that's not specifically kind of delegated to the federal government resides with the states. So uh, there's a lot more, um, there are a lot more crimes, a lot more civil issues that would end up in state court with no recourse to get to federal court. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I know that the country of Brazil has states, but I'm not sure if it's how... Um, uh, decentralized their justice system down there might be. So in comparison, the United States Supreme Court receives approximately 7,000 to 8,000 petitions for review each year. The court grants about the court grants oral argument in about 80 cases wow. and then decides another 50 just on brief. So out of the 7,000 to 8,000, it's 130. Wow. And um, so that is a far, far cry from the 100,781 in the Brazilian Supreme Court in 2009. So what is that, like 5% of the cases that get that are petitioned to the Supreme Court actually get heard in yeah. any way, shape, or form? Uh, I think it's less than 5%. I should not do math in my head. <laughs> I didn't become a lawyer to do math. You um, know, I say that all the time, and I find myself doing a lot of math in my job. It's really very distressing. Um, not to get it. Yep, you're right. It's about 2%. Yeah. 2% of the cases. Yeah. Um, so, in any event, uh, Bruno is playing keeper for Boa Esporta. And, um, I mean, I guess at some point they thought that he was promising enough that uh, he might have actually played for Brazil in the 2014 World Cup, except that he was in jail at that time. Um, so, I mean, he had a pretty good... Uh, trajectory for his career and, until he decided to murder his uh, girlfriend and feed her to dogs. I mean, who would this be? Would this? I'm trying to think of like a, com a comparison. I because I, it sounds like he's good, but he's not great. So this be like Ryan Miller having murdered his girlfriend. I mean, not that Ryan Miller would murder his girlfriend to be clear, but I'm just trying to think of like an an equitable comparison. I, I think that there's, uh, again, not Ryan Miller, but I think that um, obviously women are murdered in the United States for various reasons, probably none of them good. Um, but I don't know, I just can't really see that many circumstances where like chopping them up and feeding them to dogs is, you I guess know, that's true. like the, the second part of the story. Um, and definitely if there wasn't there a, Semi, oh, semi-famous athlete who had his girlfriend. Ray Cruz. Yeah. Yes. That's what I was thinking. But there was no like feeding to dogs there. I mean, I think that's the part of the story that freaks me out the most. No. Yeah. He just had her shot, shot. while she was driving and pregnant, mm -hmm. and um, I think he has tried to fight having to give any money to the child who survived pretty miraculously. Yeah. And I think but we he talked about Ray Cruz's murder case. Well, he wasn't the one murdered, but Ray Cruz's case in an earlier podcast. Yeah, and I know that his uh, the the child from that um, Chancellor Adams. Yeah, yes. doesn't he have significant uh, developmental? He does. Issues? Yeah, and mm -hmm. he's being raised by his mother's mother, so his grandmother. grandmother. Um, just to clarify, he's not being raised by Ray Cruz's family. <laughs> um, and yeah, I believe the. Um, his grandmother has sued Ray Carruth for whatever money he's got yeah. to help support this kid. Um, and Ray Carruth has fought her many steps of the way, which it seems like literally the least you could do. The actual least you could do is to just give this kid money to. Huh. That's kind of weird. He was, so Carruth was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, shooting into an occupied vehicle and using an instrument to destroy an unborn child. He was sentenced to 18 to 24 years in prison. I would tend to think it would be more than that. Yeah, especially in North Carolina. They're pretty, uh, he was spared the death penalty because he was found not guilty of first degree murder. Oh. But yeah, I don't know. Both Burke and I have these 
like really looks on our faces. So I mean, he like conspired to have her shot while she was driving home. I'm not really sure how that doesn't um, show uh, pre-meditation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, last, anyway. or the last of her murdery <laughs> stories is an Aaron Hernandez update, and we'll be we'll be relatively quick here because I know that we've been bending your ear for a while now. So uh, the Aaron Hernandez. Uh, trial has just wrapped up its third week and the prosecution's case in chief is still going on. Um, court was dark on Friday because a cold had spread through the courtroom and both uh, attorney, attorneys on both sides were sick. So the judge was like, go home, everyone. Get better before you come back. So. Ben Aaron Hernandez caught a cold from all this <laughs> hugging of people. Yeah, he's he's a hugger. Um, so since we talked last time, uh, the tattoo artist has testified about some of Aaron Hernandez's tattoos. But I think the, the biggest... Um, witness is basically I think of the prosecution's largest witness who's Alexander Bradley the guy who was shot in the face by Aaron Hernandez he was on the stand on Monday and Tuesday no Tuesday and Wednesday I'm sorry I'm laughing at it's it's not actually funny but the uh Dan Wetzel for the for Yahoo Mm -hmm. Sports who is covering this case tweeted out a story about Alexander Bradley that said Aaron Hernandez shot him in between the eyebrows and Alexander Bradley had two goals live and kill Hernandez (laughs) sounds very dramatic but it's actually but it's very true yeah because um I think a lot of Bradley's testimony, aside from the fact that they were really good friends, they bonded over weed, they partied together. He was his um, his supplier uh, for many, many years. He uh, was, you know, he, they went to clubs together and all of that, and they had had this like really great friendship. I think that was probably that the friendship part is not disputed, but. When Bradley woke up to find Aaron Hernandez pointing a gun at his head, um, he basically was like, you know, if I live, I'm going to ruin you, basically. was. I believe his exact testimony was, I didn't want to talk to the police. I wanted Mr. Hernandez. I wanted his life. Yeah. And then they broke for lunch. So that's <laughs> what the jury was left with. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Bradley testified, you know, for the prosecution about how um, Aaron Hernandez was the one who, they were in the club, the drink got spilled, he was the one who, so I think Bradley was driving, no, driving the car? I think that's the story that the defense is is giving, which doesn't make a ton of sense, because they're also arguing that Alexander Bradley is actually the one who shot these two guys. He was, that's a lot of multitasking that based on what I've seen from Alexander Bradley, I don't know that he could handle, but um, I guess that's the theory. You got to go with the theory that you yeah. have. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, like the aha moment came on Thursday when the defense team basically like threw down this deleted text message of Bradley saying that he couldn't remember who shot him. And people were like, oh, my God, because he had, you know, basically clearly said that Aaron Hernandez shot me in the face. So um, there was a lot of back and forth. And I'm surprised, like Bradley actually like held up. He didn't break. He didn't say anything like really detrimental. He basically said, um, I think that the text message said something like he I think the issue was he had reached a civil settlement with Hernandez and Mm -hmm. he was asking his lawyer if I go into the grand jury and say I can't remember, am I going to perjure myself? Because mm-hmm. he decided, he, I guess he had softened in his stance towards Aaron Hernandez and didn't want him to go to jail for well, shooting him in the head anymore. He, well, but the fact that he got money from the civil suit that clearly said you were the guy who right. shot me. Like, if you went to a grand jury and said, I don't remember, that's basically... Like, you can use your prior testimony or your prior previous but, public statements to, you know, undermine your credibility. So And so that's... a what he was asking and apparently as part of his deal to um with prosecutors he waived all of his attorney client privilege so that's how they got they got the text text messages yes yeah so um i think he's done i don't think he's coming back i don't know that he had more but it you know it might boil down to whether or not the jury believes alexander bradley or 
or not. And, you know, we've talked at length on this podcast before about how it's the prosecution's burden to show beyond a reasonable doubt that Aaron Hernandez did this. And like Aaron Hernandez hasn't put on a defense yet because so for the last three weeks, it's just been the prosecution's case. So um, I think that Aaron Hernandez's attorney has been trying very hard and has done a pretty fair job of, you know, uh, creating doubt, poking holes, and um, and doing what he needs to do. But I will be interested to see what their case is going to be about. Marijuana rage, drug deal gone bad, you right. know, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, I don't know what the hell they're going to... Um, they're going to offer other than Alexander Bradley um, has a vendetta against Aaron Hernandez, and so he's lying. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a fair vendetta. Like, he shot, well, shot in the head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would be pretty hell-bent on ruining <laughs> the person who shot me in the head's life. Yeah. So it's not unreasonable. No, it's not. Um, so that's where we are. It's much more of that to come in the weeks ahead. Um, I think we wanted to take this opportunity to remind you of how you can find us. Right. So we are on Instagram and Twitter at UFR underscore BG. Um, you can check out our website at underfurtherreview-bg.com. Um, and you can always email us at underfurtherreview.bg at gmail.com. Um, so if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about or you have questions for us, uh, please feel free to email and we will be better at updating our social media. We will. And And we're also looking to get a theme song (laughs) because the podcast does start rather abruptly. We're aware. We're Um, working on it. (laughs) Yes. And if you want to go ahead and uh, review us on iTunes, that would be great. Um, So far we have two. Um, So any any reviews would be deeply appreciated. But only say nice things. (laughs) Yeah. We would really, we would be glad if you said nice things. And if you had constructive criticism, you can get a hold of us through email. email. Yes. (laughs) Um, And when, you know, we're open to suggestions and I apologize for all the background noise this week. We are recording at um, my apartment and my little nephew is very mobile and he likes to run around upstairs and apparently there's not a lot of insulation between the two apartments. So I apologize for... Someday when we get our podcast money, we can get him a rug. Yes. Or maybe (laughs) one day when we have podcast money, we can actually record in a studio. I mean, that's a... (laughs) That's a really big goal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So thanks for listening, and we will be back with you soon. Bye.